Hey, today I've got a conversation with a longtime friend of the podcast, Glenn Livingston, PhD, who is the author of Never Binge Again and the founder of Never Binge Again, which is a system designed to help you overcome emotional eating, stop binging and regain control of your relationship with food. Glenn and I have been talking roughly every two weeks. We often record, usually for his blog and podcast, occasionally for some stuff that I'm doing, and we kick around ideas. We're both health coaches. We both read a lot, practice a lot, and we're both committed to continuous learning and improvement. And one of the things I've noticed is that Glenn wrote this book, I guess like five and a half, six years ago, and he got a lot of criticism, a lot of flack from various um, parts of the diet world, accusing him of all sorts of things. And it'd be very easy for him to just sort of double down because he didn't really agree with most of those uh, criticisms. He found that his method worked very well for a wide variety of people. And it's easy for him to say, well, they just don't know what they're talking about and I'm not going to listen to them. And it's very easy for him to say when people came to him for help, if they weren't getting the help to say, well, there's a problem with them. There's something wrong with them. They're not doing it. They're not working the program. And instead, Glenn, more than almost anybody I know, is so committed to improvement that pretty much every client that presented a challenge to him caused him to go back to the drawing board, to tweak, to shift, to alter, to expand, to subtract, to change his methodology so that it would become more and more and more universally effective over time. And in our world of like health influencers and wellness gurus, that is so rare. It is so rare for us not to just say, well, we've got it figured out and anyone who doesn't benefit from it, there's something wrong with them. And so Glenn really is a role model for me in constantly battling his own confirmation bias. Uh, feeling like he wants to defend something and instead seeing what he can learn and how he can grow and improve. So our conversation today was all about what have you learned about helping people stop binging since you started sharing Never Binge Again with the public. And we talked about a whole bunch of stuff, which you are going to hear about in just a second. Before we get there, one thing to warn you about, the audio quality is pretty bad for the first few minutes Um, For some reason, something was going on with Skype. Once we switched to Zoom, it got much better, but hopefully you'll hang in there and you'll still be able to understand everything Glenn said. So I hope you enjoy it. And I hope um, if you're interested in his work, you can find it more at uh, neverbingeagain.com. As he says later, just push the big red button and you can get started. All right, so let's get to it. Without further ado, Dr. Glenn Livingston, welcome back to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thanks, Mia. It's good to be here. How long have you been doing Never Binge Again? How long have I, like, when did I recover from overreading myself or when did I publish the book? When did you publish the book? It was in October of 2015. Ah, wow. So it's uh, five and a half years. Yes, and my forehead has turned into a five head, and um, my hair is substantially more gray, and uh, yeah, all those things. All right, well, so... uh, First, first disclaimer is that Never Binge Again doesn't reverse aging, apparently. Not as far as I know. <laughs> not as, no, no, not at all. No, it's, been, um, it's been a wild ride. I've learned a lot of things and 
talked to a lot of people and, um, and a lot of things in the business. And it's been a very, very interesting five years, five and a half years. Yeah, so I wanted to talk to you about what you have learned about emotional eating, binge eating, helping people recover, overcome. Like, you know, we could have a whole other talk about what you learned about the business of it, but I think that's not, that's not of so much interest to my audience. But, you know, we've talked kind of every couple of weeks for years now, and you always have some new thing that you discovered from either from your own experience or from working with people or from getting feedback. Like you put this, this, this manuscript out into the world and it's been read by a lot of people. You have like a crazy number of Amazon reviews. What did it, what did it just hit? Uh, we have more than 10,000 Amazon reviews, which is more reviews than the Da Vinci Code. Um, we got a lot of reviews. As near as we can calculate, we have a little more than a million readers. Wow. So, so you've learned stuff from, uh, from working with people. You know, there's some, there's the, you know, you were an N of one for your own recovery. You wrote this book, which you uh, assumed could translate your experience into that for other people. And you have worked on it, tweaked it, refined it, redefined it over many years. I would love to hear what you've learned. And how, and how you learned it, and how confident are you that it's right? Okay. I'm very confident it's right because we've worked with thousands of people at this point, and, um, you know, we can see the progress. So I suppose the... You know what? Let's, actually, let me, let me interrupt you there. Just, just, just start by saying what Never Binge Again is. Like, let's do the the two-minute introduction, just so people who might not be familiar with your work have a, a foundation. Okay. Well, I was a really fat guy, and I couldn't stop eating, and the traditional psychological route didn't work, where you try to love yourself thin and figure that if you could fill up the hole in your heart, then maybe you wouldn't have to fill the hole in your belly. That didn't work for me. It seemed like the more I focused on that, the worse I got. I got better as a person. I got, I got um, to be more soulful. I forgave myself. I could forgive other people more easily. Um, you know, I'm a fairly agnostic person, but to the extent that agnostic people have spiritual experiences, I you know, felt at one with nature, and I felt at one with, um, you know, uh, it's, it's like what the... Buddha said to the hot dog vendor, make me one with everything. I, I kind of felt like that. Uh, it's, it's an appropriate spiritual never begin binge again joke, right? Um, but I didn't get better. I didn't get better in terms of um, my ability to stop obsessing about food or my ability to stop overeating. And um, when I was in my early 40s, maybe late 30s, I put a bunch of things together that made me realize that was the wrong paradigm. Love yourself in was the wrong paradigm. I realized that from my from my consulting work with the big food industry, I realized how strong the food-like substances they were making were. They're really targeting the the bliss point in the reptilian brain, the seat of the feast and famine response, um, trying to hit that bliss point without giving enough 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 
nutrition to feel satisfied. And the result was a hijacking of the survival drive so that we think that what we really need to survive are all our bags and boxes and containers. And I saw what the advertising industry was doing to make us believe that we needed those. And, and I saw that the addiction treatment industry was saying you can't quit even if you want to. The best you can do is abstain one day at a time. And I said, that's not a good paradigm. <laughs> that's, that's why everybody's so obese. And that's why, you know, cardiovascular disease and heart attacks and everything are running rampant. But maybe that's why this doesn't work. Maybe in this case, the fact that I was brought up by 17 psychotherapists and a family, um, you know, that valued how everybody felt, but not, not as much the practicalities of succeeding in the world. Um, which was a blessing and a curse. Maybe that was actually hindering me. Maybe I needed to be more like an alpha wolf who was asserting control and dominance. And I said to myself, the um, the drive to overeat is a very strong biological urge, which seems to be seems to arise from the feast or famine response. It seems to be a survival response. Um, but there are other very strong biological urges that we do control by asserting dominance. Most of us don't pee in the middle of a business meeting. We tell our bladders we understand they have to go, and you know we'll take care of it at the appropriate place and time. But we know that our executive function is in control, and we make our bladders wait for the appropriate place and time. And we we eventually have to attend to our biological needs, or else our bladders will tell us otherwise. But our, you know, the, the assertive, directive, delay of gratification functions in the upper brain hold dominance over the survival drive in the lower brain. And that's kind of how evolution worked it out for us so that we would have the ability to strategize and pursue goals and be more successful as a species rather than just the instinctive immediate reactions. Um, and I decided that in order to do this, I had to better recognize when the reptilian brain was active, when the survival response was active in pursuing the wrong thing. So I made very clear, bright lines in the sand, like I will never have chocolate on a weekday again. And that way, if I heard a little voice in my head that said, go ahead, you worked out hard enough, even though it's a Wednesday, you won't gain any weight. Um, Go ahead and have some chocolate. It's okay. I, I knew that that was my inner pig. I called it my inner pig. I was not going to publish this. This was just going to be a private thing. Uh, and I I called the thing it was striving for pig slop. So I'd say, wait a minute. Chocolate is pig slop on a Wednesday. I don't, I don't eat pig slop. And I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. And that was the first mechanism that allowed me to wake up at the moment of impulse and give me a few extra microseconds to make the right choice. I didn't always make the right choice, um, but I no longer felt powerless and confused. I recognized that there was the opportunity to make that choice. Mm -hmm. And before that, it was you would sometime later look back and realize that there was a right choice that you hadn't made. Yes. Um, you know, hindsight was always twenty twenty, and um, 
This is actually one of the key things that changed in recent years. I recovered post-mortem. So I would make the mistake, I would suffer for it. Usually I would have a little chocolate and then a little more chocolate and then some pizza and then some lattes and then some donuts. And, you know, and I, I was 280 pounds at one point. Um, and I was in all sorts of trouble with my triglycerides and you know, I, doctors were yelling at me all the time. But I, I, would, I would go through making the mistake. I'd have to recover physically from the mistake. And then I would sit down and I'd write out, well, the pig told me it would be just as easy to start tomorrow. How is it lying to me? And I've subsequently discovered that the pig always tells a half-truth and a bigger lie, and that's why it's so seductive. So in this case, the pig would say, it's just as easy to start tomorrow. You're not going to gain any weight. So you might as well binge now and let's, you know, let's go to town. Yippee, we can do it again tomorrow. And I subsequently learned that while I probably wouldn't gain any weight from that one piece of chocolate, I would definitely gain weight from, you know, six, six chocolate bars and five donuts and all the things that I would have thereafter. And um, more importantly, I discovered the principle of neuroplasticity which says that what fires together wires together. So if you have an urge and that urge then becomes associated with um, a reward or an indulgence, then that urge gets stronger, which means that if I eat chocolate today in response to my urge to have chocolate, it's going to be harder to stop eating chocolate tomorrow. So if you're in a hole, you should stop digging. Um, you really can't... Subsequently, there are 12 other reasons you can't start tomorrow. We can talk about that if you want to later. And so post-mortem, I would recover by analyzing what was wrong with um, what was wrong with what my pig was saying. And then it would be that much easier to recognize and resist the next time. I've subsequently learned to recognize the urge sooner um, be able to take myself out of that perceived emergency state, you know, just hand over the chocolate and nobody gets hurt. I've learned that there are ways to take yourself out of that state and do the analysis in real time until the urge goes away. Um, I've subsequently learned how to do that. And I've also learned that the, uh, although the justification of the binge was very prominent in my personal recovery, it's not the only part of the addictive model. There are other factors that are important to attend to uh, over, and over and above removing the justification. The justification was a big part of it, because for me, if I made a solemn promise to live according to a certain type of value, um, you know, I, I always say that character is nothing more than the habitual behavior you engage in in the face of temptation. And if I made a promise not to have chocolate during the week, what I was really saying is I want to be the kind of person who doesn't eat chocolate during the week, then I really wanted to live in accord with my values. And so in order to sidestep that, it seemed like I really needed a justification. So when I removed those justifications, it became very hard for me to bench. Um, but I subsequently learned that not, not everybody is as strongly motivated to live in accord with their values as I am, but most people are. And secondly, there are, there are other parts of the model, like there's how difficult is it to get the addictive food. There are 
other parts, other elements of motivation besides the person you want to become. Um, there is the presence or absence of stimuli in the environment that remind you of the availability of the addictive food. There, there are all sorts of, and, and then there's the biological state that you keep yourself in. You know, it's it's much easier it's much easier not to buy the chocolate if you you know just had a big kale banana smoothie and your body is flooded with nutrition than if you haven't eaten all day and you're really tired and you really need the energy. Mm-hmm. Um, so that yeah, that sounds a little bit different from when you and I first explored my own um, lack of character around food. Those those moments when I was not doing what I wanted to do, and we were we were talking about like we if we create a category for me of pig slop, then none of that other stuff should matter, right? Like whether right. whether it's right in front of me, whether people are dancing in bikinis with tattoos of the name of the food on it, whether um, I haven't eaten in six days, like character at that early stage was everything. Like I make this decision and I'm going to live in accordance with it. Character trumps willpower. Character trumps temptation. That's what I firmly believed at that time. And I, I still believe it's a very large part of the equation, but I was not willing to admit that there were other elements involved. How did did you I mean, this is interesting for me because I know so many people in in our field around, you know, health and well-being and personal development who have models that work good enough and they are completely resistant to changing them. And anybody who comes up and says, hey, this isn't working for me or, uh, you know, like we can easily blame them. Well, you're not working it like what um, what was your experience of changing your mind? Well, I, I was trained as a scientist. Um, you know, I, I, it took me nine years to get my PhD from the time I graduated high school. So I had nine years of studying scientific methodology. And the scientific, scientific method essentially is thesis, antithesis, and synthesis, right? We're, we're very interested in a, di- in a dialogue. We're very interested in pursuing truth. We're taught not to become too wedded to our own hypotheses, but rather to be open to the data as it unfolds. And so I've always, I've always held that as one of my highest values, um, you know, truth above all. And I know that uh, I, I know how easily how easy it is to become myopic. Um, I know how easy it is to get to fall in love with your own thoughts. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I've, I've been on hundreds of podcasts and hundreds of people have challenged me. Um, I've worked extensively with you and with Yoav, um, who've had their own ideas. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm old enough to be humble. I think I have moments of genius. I think I'm making a very significant contribution. I think I see things that no one else has seen. But I also think that I can be wrong. And... Um, one of the most wonderful things in life to me is when the truth unfolds and I can be a better service to people because of it. So, um, and I, which is not to say I had no resistance, um, because the, the truth that I've been telling is a harsh truth. Um, when 
people in our culture really want to believe that they can't control themselves, and they have to fight very hard against that perception. People really want to believe they get knocked, knocked unconscious and need to quote-unquote numb out, and, and they don't really want to see the aspect of them that's making a choice and eating to get high with food. And, and so I had to defend the position to a very large extent and make it a matter of character. Um, so I think it was a little bit of slow growth in some ways, but like the things I'm telling you about were things I couldn't ignore. So it just um, kind of, and, and, and I had some, um, I had some clients who really struggled, struggled to figure things out who, and, and I didn't want them to suffer. I really wanted to help them. So they would force me to think something else through. And um, so I'm, I'm always thinking, that's all. That's, mm. I was born to think. <laughs> Do you have any examples that come to mind of someone you worked with who whose lack of success led you to tweak or innovate? Yeah, I, I, I could be public about this because we did a number of public podcasts. This this woman live. Um, I remember she told me that it can't be this simple. You can't just say I have a pig inside me and then just totally changed at that moment. And I had to tell her that it could be that simple, but that there was a lot more to it. I told her that it was like building a muscle. Um, this is where I really formulated this. And I, I said that learning to stop binging is like learning to insert yourself between stimulus and response. And we develop these habits and pathways that are very well-worn grooves. You know, I see chocolate, therefore I must eat it. I'm standing online at Starbucks. I get my, you know, vanilla chai tea latte, and there's a chocolate bar with my name on it, and I buy it and I eat it, and then there's a behavior chain that follows. Um, and initially, you don't really experience yourself between that stimulus and response. It feels automatic. But if you force yourself to assign words, and the way that I've discovered to get people to do this is not to ask them, what did your pig say, or what did your food monster say to justify buying that chocolate bar when you saw it on the counter, even though you knew it would break your rules. Um, I'll ask them what might the pig have said, or what occurs to them about what the pig might have said, or what could the pig have said. and so, so I really, really have to accept people at face value. They really did not hear anything. They didn't hear a justification. But if you say, well, you, you did make a solemn promise to yourself. This was really important when you made it. I remember doing it with you. Um, you told me that there were a million reasons you wanted to do this, you know, including losing weight and you know, being free from the risk of cardiovascular disease and, you know, and some people who were bulimic and you know, if they don't binge, they won't purge. Um, you gave me a million reasons. So there had to have been something that the pig said. What might it have been? And I realize you have to help people develop the muscle of assigning language between stimulus and response. Because when they start to assign language, that gives them the lever of identifying how they're justifying it, even though they didn't know that they were justifying it. Um, so that, that was a big learning, and that was very helpful to live. I also at that time, recognize that people need to understand that um, 
you know, how, if you use the personal trainer's analogy, like someone's doing squats with weights on the bar, how heavy that bar is has a lot to do with whether you can, you can do it, whether, whether you can, you know, assign words and refute the pig and obtain from the, from the bench. And a lot of the weights on the bar had to do, had to do with, um, you know, the nutrition that people had throughout the course of the day had to do with the amount of sleep that they were getting. Um, it had to do with whether they were eating something crunchy during the day. I've discovered that people adding crunch to their lunch does a world of good for avoiding afternoon and evening, evening binges. Um, there seems to be some element of oral aggression that builds up from the frustration of the day and we you know, just want to bite things. Sometimes I think that like we want to bite people. Yeah. <laughs> we can't bite people, so if we chew in some carrots or some celery and have that on a salad or some, even some alfalfa sprouts, um, sometimes I think that that takes just enough of the edge off of the oral aggression. Um, or, or maybe there's some natural um, natural satisfaction from crunching that we would have had to do in nature. I, I don't know. I, I remember read, reading somewhere about the uh, food food companies um, having scientists assess how hard you had to pull open the bag. Like they, they didn't want to make it so easy that you didn't feel like you were like ripping something. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. Well, they do, they do all kinds of stuff. I've heard even more since that they, um, like in a bag of chips, they vary the flavor of the individual chips. They don't take them all off the same assembly line for the most part. They have multiple assembly lines with different, slightly, like microscopic differences in taste sensation, um, so that you don't get fatigued by by the taste. You're always thinking there's some new taste in there. You should keep going after. It's uh, it's, it's scary how much um, these scientists know about how to get us to keep eating. Hmm. Um, so now I forgot the original question. You, you asked me for an example. Well, you're talking about weights on the bar, crunch to the lunch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so crunch to your lunch. I learned. Um, I've learned that the rules have to be absolutely crystal clear. I've learned that. Um, I I've learned that you can never really get to feel 100% confident that you're never going to break the line again, because you have all these memories and you know you can't cut out your survival drive and it's really. It's a misdirection of the survival drive. It's not the survival drive itself. You, what you need to do is retrain it to focus on the right things as opposed to the wrong things. And so because of that, the pig can always say, well, we used to, so we will again. And there's, there's a leap of faith you have to take where you, you declare yourself 100% confident and you decide that all the uncertainty and anxiety belongs to your pig. And... You know, by doing that, you're making a very clear and forceful separation between your positive food identity and your negative food identity, and you're forcing yourself to relentlessly focus on the confident part of yourself, which it turns out is the best thing to do to develop a success identity with um, with food. So, so that that was um, that was an example. You, you, you were the example that helped me understand that, by the way, because I remember at the end of the interview we did where I was helping you to stop eating Cliff Bars, which worked. 
uh, or, or no, maybe it was the other one where you had to put a note in your toothbrush about writing out a food plan for the day. Yeah. Um, you, you couldn't get to that 100% confidence level. And then I realized that I had to push you even though you couldn't get there to adopt a 100% confidence level to arbitrarily declare 100% confidence through a leap of faith. Yeah. Um, and I, I always thought of that session as iconic for, um, for how you did that. So, yeah. Well, yeah, it's interesting because, you know, you, you and I have been good friends for a long time and I still felt uncomfortable for me to not it, you know, to not go along with your your thing. Like, you know, I was like, oh, he wants me to say I'm 100 percent confident now, confident now. And we're recording this and he knows what he's doing. And I'm like, yeah, but that would be a lie. Yeah. And so I think if I, you know, it's a credit to you that a whole bunch of other people that you've worked with have also like told you the truth. <laughs> like, like, Glenn, this isn't quite working because it's it's so easy when we set ourselves up as influencers and as teachers for people to, you know, feel like, oh, well, we're the gurus and they must be doing something wrong if they're not getting the results. And I know a lot of people who actively encourage their followers to think that way. Right. And I project authority pretty well, so I have to be careful of that. The thing is, it would be a lie if you weren't fully separating your identity from the pigs. If you if you get the idea, and, and this is where people do get the idea, if you get the idea that you, all the things that you value as a human being and your ability to delay gratification and you know pursue spirituality and music and art and relationships and contributions to society, all those things are different than the, um, than the destructive urges that you have to you know, blow apart your best opportunities and plans. Um, when you really get that idea, you commit to that separation, then you can say, I'm 100% confident that I'll never meet you again um, and, and really mean it. So it's, um, it's a paradoxical, it, it, it's not really paradoxical, but, but it's, a, it's a leap of faith you have to take. It is a leap of faith. And I can tell you that it's worth it, but it feels uncomfortable at first. Mm -hmm. Great. So what else have you have you altered over the years? I learned a lot about bulimia. Um, I did not set. Well, first of all, I offer this as education and not to diagnose, treat or cure any disease, disorder or condition. But I was a binge eater. I wasn't a bulimic. So maybe I was an exercise bulimic, but I, I could not make myself throw up. I tried. And um, you're, you're a failed bulimic. I'm a failed bulimic. <laughs> Thank God, because it, it's so dangerous. Yeah. Thank God. And, it's, and it actually, because it makes people feel like they can get rid of the damage, which you really can't, but it makes them feel like that. It, it makes the binging much worse, and it, it becomes a, a much more serious problem. Um, I had a lot of people coming in telling me that they had made some progress with their bulimia using Never Binge Again. And at first I would just turn them all away and I'd say, look, um, yeah, okay, I, I didn't design it for that. I'm, I'm glad it's working for you, but I don't know anything about it. And I, I can't in all good conscience tell you that I can help you with that. But they kept coming. They just kept coming anyway. They said, well, if I don't binge, then I won't purge. I said, okay. So I had them all sign waivers because it is a dangerous thing. 
And then we started taking them in the program as long as they were uh, concomitantly working with a, you know, with a treat with a professional treatment team, and the professional treatment team said it was okay. And I discovered a couple of really interesting things. The first was that it was a mistake to force them to have a rule that says I'll never purge again, because the, the people who were successful had essentially two rules: I will never purge again, I will never eat sugar again. Um, it seemed like bulimia is all about you know, binging and purging on sugar. It seemed like that's mostly what it's about to me for most people. And so at first I thought, well, I'll just tell people that. You know, the successful people are, uh, they have a rule that says they'll never purge again, and then they have a rule that they won't have sugar, and they deal with the squeals, and they use our, our tools until that actually happens. Mm-hmm. Well, I found out that... Um, that wasn't the most successful way to go about it. When I would tell people we can't work with you unless you're willing to make a rule that says I'll never purge again, they they would refund and leave immediately. And it was really perplexing to me. I said, well, you said you want to stop. Why wouldn't you make a rule that does that? And then I realized that they were just too frightened to live in the world without purging because they felt like then they couldn't get rid of the bench. Which is how you have to feel to get over bulimia. You have to be able to sit with the results. But it was too much for some people. And what I found with people that had bulimia was that they really believed, and to some extent it was very true, that if they didn't binge, they wouldn't purge. And they were not willing to sit with a binge. They really they were attracted to the title, never binge again. They thought that was the solution. If I don't binge, then I won't purge. Hey, that was an abrupt uh, shift. My computer overheated. My Skype got weird. So we are now on Zoom. Hello, Glenn. Okay. So ne- neither of us remembers where we were, right? Well, I remember what we were, we were talking about bulimia, bulimia, but I don't remember what was the last thing that was on the recording. Um, I'm not sure, but it was it was some. Let's, it was about people wanted refunds immediately when you told them they weren't allowed to to um, purge anymore. Yes. Yes. Because I, I figured that since all of the successful people had developed a rule that says I will never purge again and I will never have sugar, that I would tell them that we couldn't really work with them unless they would agree to adopt a rule that says I will never purge again. And if they made a mistake, they made a mistake. But that was the bullseye they were aiming for. And I found that the people with bulimia would inevitably refund and run away when I would say that. Um, and then it occurred to me that, well, I'm losing the opportunity to help them. So it's not helpful to them to tell them that, even though that seems to be what's successful. So I'll say, okay, well, you don't have to make any rules you don't want to, just like everybody else. If you want to come into the program and work at this, then tell us what rules you do want to make. And inevitably, people wanted to make a regular rule that would stop them from binging. And what I discovered was that it was too frightening for them to give up the possibility of binging. It was just too scary. You mean of, of purging? Uh, of purging, I'm sorry. It was just too right. scary. So it was, it was their, their safety. That was their safety, and it was too frightening for them. And the pathway to recovery for most people seemed to be that they, like, once it became possible for people to tell us without us getting frightened and saying, well, we can't work with you, the pathway seems to be that they make a rule that gets them not to binge 
And if they don't binge, that they don't purge. And then when they see that they cannot binge for a long time and they lose a little weight and they're, they're not blowing up like a balloon, um, then they're willing to make a rule that says, I will never purge again. Um, but it's very interesting. I lost a lot of people in the beginning by insisting that they had to make a rule that they couldn't purge. Hmm. Um, yeah. And then that was the first time you'd ever made, made people make a particular rule. Yeah, because what, you know, one of the cardinal principles of never binge again is nobody else tells you what to do. Um, but I was scared. I was scared that they could really get hurt with, um, and they can, with purging. But eventually, you know, I talked to an attorney and I said, look, if these people want to keep purging and they're working with a psychiatrist and psychologist and they've got a treatment team and the treatment team is aware of it and they sign something that says that, um, you know, can I try to help them not to binge? And she said, absolutely. And she actually told me there might be more liability if I told them that, um, if I told them they couldn't work with us and they had to work with the psychiatrist. So uh-huh. <laughs> very interesting. Um, but mostly I was just scared I was going to hurt them. Um, yeah. So that was the first time that I told anybody what food rule they had to have. I mean, Howie, there, there are some people I won't work with who come, come in with crazy plans. We have people who want to go on a, you know, 300 calorie a day diet. Uh-huh. Um, I had a woman who came to see me and she said, my rule is I don't eat any food whatsoever because I'm addicted to all food. And, you know, there, there are some things you just can't succeed with. We, we right. tend we're, to... we're all addicted to being human. Mm-hmm. It's not, it's not, it's not optional. Right. Right. So we, we have to eat. Um, which is one of the reasons that food addiction is harder to to deal with than other addictions where you can just give it up. Um, so, yeah, so that, you, that you, sorry, go ahead. So that's another thing that we learned over the years that's been very very helpful. Mm-hmm. Do you find that there's a particular ways of eating that that allow people to be more successful? You know, you know, vegan, whole food, plant based, keto. I do. I do, but I don't want to talk about it. Okay. <laughs> well, here's why. The moment I talk about it, uh, you know, then the other factions feel, um, they feel hurt. And, um, and I've promised that Never Binge Again has to be diet agnostic. But for the same reasons that I can't tell people what rules to adopt, I can't tell people what diet to adopt. And I, I you know, there are some diets I personally just really don't believe in. I think they're, they're not really nutritionally sound, but I think by the same token, they're infinitely better than having 10,000 calories of sugar a day. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I work with people on any dietary philosophy they really believe in, um, you know, provided they have, uh, you know, it's reasonably nutritionally fa- sound that if I'm not sure I have them see a dietitian or nutritionist to, to back it up. Um, and, you know, I, I think that there are, I think there is one way that people should eat. I don't think that, uh, like Doug Graham, Doug Graham always talks about zookeepers. He says, um, every zookeeper in the world knows there's a way you're supposed to feed a gorilla. You don't feed a gorilla differently in Florida than you feed a gorilla in South Africa. Um, 
You don't feed a gorilla with this blood type, something different than you feed a gorilla with that blood type. There, there is a truth out there. And I think it's not really hard, that hard to discern if you look at what the other animals that eat, that share, you know, 99% of our DNA are eating as their natural diet. Um, but I also think that other animals are not required to adapt to the demands of society. You know, it's, you could say it's not natural to eat a lot of things that we eat, but it's also not natural to spend most of our day between four walls staring at a computer screen, hoping electrons will flow into our bank account. <laughs> um, right. So there are adaptations and compromises that we make in order to function and integrate ourselves into society. Um, and so I, I view my role as helping people move forward. I, I think I have discovered what would probably be ideal. And I don't, I don't pursue that bullseye 100% anymore. I found it's too difficult. I can't really adapt to society and pursue the bullseye that I think is 100% ideal for health. And so I, you know, I fully acknowledge that I might die at 100 instead of 105 um, because of that. But I'm okay with that because the quality of my life is better being able to adapt along the way. Mm, is, is that an insight that you've shared with people? Because it feels like it could be a very freeing thing. You know, a lot of people that I work with come in with a real uh, outlook around purity. You know, and every, everything, there's, it's like a, a moral accountancy. It's, right? it, it's part of the food addiction, though, that... that um... You know, I always tell people to commit with perfection, like aim with perfection and forgive yourself with dignity. But what target are you committing to? And if you commit to a target that's too perfectionistic, uh, first of all, you won't be able to hit it and your pig knows that. And because it knows you won't be 100%, you know, you're not going to be the person who eats exactly like the, you know, the bonobos or the gorillas or the, you know, the animals that are, 100% closest to us. It knows you can't do that. So it holds up a target that's way too high because it, then it knows you're going to say, well, you know, when you're good, you're very, very good. But when you're bad, you're horrid. So let's just go to town and binge since we obviously can't do this perfectionistic target. And I find that people are much more successful when they come up with a realistic target. And so most people we work with, um, would not win the award for the purest diet ever. Most successful people we work with, um, you know, they have some indulgences that are well thought through and designed. And what we are perfectionistic about instead is using our intellect to control the, um, to control our behavior with food, to make our decisions with food around all of the dangerous trigger foods and situations. And we try to have as few of those as possible, but no fewer than is necessary. And we make rules to control that. And I find that what food addiction really is, is an addiction to spontaneous decision-making by impulse and emotion. Ooh, oh, I want to write that one down. Yeah. But food addiction, what it really is, it's not necessarily an addiction to a particular food, like sugar or flour, although those are very addictive foods in and of themselves. And some people really can't have them at all, but I don't think that's the larger component of it. I think the larger component of food addiction 
is an addiction to spontaneous decision-making via emotions and impulses as compared to well-thought-through decision-making through your intellect as far as your dangerous food triggers and behaviors are concerned. Ooh, that's good. I think that's going to be the title. (laughs) It's a long title, man. Yeah, I'm I'm, going to cut it a little bit. We call it eating by design. That's our trademark term is eating by design, eat by design, uh-huh. or snack by design. There, there's a big difference between saying I will have one piece of chocolate cake on Friday mornings with my wife at the coffee shop versus, um, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mostly avoid chocolate. And then you just try to make decisions as the week goes on. It doesn't require willpower. You know when it starts and stops. It's got very clear boundaries. All your decisions are made for you. You don't have to tax yourself um, and tap into your your feelings and your you know your emotional state as much. And, and that's another thing we've learned. You know, we're, we're constantly being compared to mindful eating, and I'm a fan of eating mindfully and intuitively. I think that between the lines, just like you drive between the lines intuitively, you're not constantly obsessing about exactly what angle to hold the steering wheel and you don't have to constantly remember what a stop sign means and everything like that. You, you kind of drift once you know the rules. Well, I, I think that life is better when you're mindful. I think if you let your food nourish you because you're present for it and you taste it and you smell it and you enjoy every last bite of it, you're much more likely to feel sated on less food and it's a, it's a better way to be. So I'm very much in favor of mindful eating. The problem is who can be mindful all the time in this society with everything that we have to do and all the decisions we have to make on all the, you know, stimuli that are encroaching on our perceptual field. Like how many times does the scene change when you watch an episode of Seinfeld? And that was 20 years ago. The, the, you know, level of stimulation has gone up and up and up and up. And it's become progressively more difficult to be, mindfully present. And so I don't think mindful eating works as well as Never Binge Again, because there are times you just can't be mindful. I think it's still the goal. And I think if we, you know, lived in the wild and we gathered a little food and then we, you know, hung around and, you know, made love with our mates and played with our kids and um, you had a fairly stress-free life, I, I think that mindful eating might be the only thing that we need. But in you know, in 2021, in the society that we live in, I, I don't know anybody that can be mindful all the time. Right. Although, like someone like Judson Brewer, who, who's written about mindfulness as, a, as an addiction treatment, would probably say the goal is not mindfulness all the time, but mindfulness as a corrective. Right. That, like, if you're using your analogy of the lines, people are crashing into, you know, mailboxes and oncoming traffic all the time and they're just not even paying attention to it. And so like you start, you start noticing that, Oh, I hit a mailbox. Oh, I knocked over a pedestrian. Oh, I took out my side view mirror that that can become the corrective rather than a priori rules. Oh, whoops. I knocked over over a pedestrian. (laughs) I better better pay attention. Whoops. All right, so the analogy breaks down there. I, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. I, I, I agree with you. 
<laughs> Whoops, my bad. <laughs> so sue me. No, just kidding. Right, 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 right. Well, why? Well, I, I, I don't disagree. I, I think I think that um, paying attention to consequences and using mindfulness as correct as a corrective measure is helpful. I also think using rules as a corrective measure can be more helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I. I don't see it as never binge again versus mindfulness. I see it as never binge again and mindfulness. Uh huh. Right. I guess yeah. The two can really support each other. Um, so one one more question before I let you go. Um, as you mentioned, there's a lot of criticism of never binge again from various camps, from mindful eating to intuitive eating to um, you know body positivity. Um, that you know, the people felt that you the rules you were making were were too too restrictive, and that having rules at all was just you know tying you know tying people into um, sort of trying to master themselves rather than love themselves. Was there anything from those critiques that you found useful, and has have found their way into Never Binge Again? You you know you mentioned thesis antithesis. You certainly created a lot of antithesis. Have, have any of those synthesized in any way? Um, I understand the intuitive eating perspective as a developmental phase. Like I don't, I don't think, like I said, I don't think it's never been again versus intuitive eating. Um, intuitive eating works for a lot of people. There's no question that it does. The problem that people complain to me about is they feel like they're not eating healthy enough and they wish they could eat healthy, but they're frightened of setting rules. And I think that the idea that um, that any rule, first of all, has to be a restrictive rule um, and that even a mental restriction will cause a binge, um, I think that takes things too far. I think there's a developmental phase when, you know, children are um, exploring themselves and trying to come up with their own rules and really wanting to rebel against any rules imposed by their parents. And I find that for most binge eaters, we have been controlled against our best interests when it comes to food. We've been told either to eat or not to eat for reasons that weren't really in the interest of our health and you know, confidence and well-being. And so we've developed an aversion to rules that says, you know, rules are meant to be broken and we can't trust any rule that anybody else gives us. And by extension, we can't even trust rules that we give us ourselves. I think that, um, I think I have to acknowledge the ability of intuitive eating to help those kind of people um, where sometimes never binge again will fail because it is rules-based. At the same time, I maintain the position that the use of rules is like using a kitchen knife and you could use it for good or evil. You can use a kitchen knife to chop vegetables and eat healthy, or you can use a kitchen knife to cut up those pedestrians that you ran over. Um, You know, you can use never binge again to come up with a simple set of rules that flood your body with nutrition with this like caloric deficit so that you accomplish your health and fitness goals. Or you could use it to overly restrict and torture yourself so that you will eventually, you know, compensate by binging again. 
And I don't think the rejection of rules in and of itself is the right solution. I think that, um, you know, learning to use the kitchen knife the right way is the right solution. Right. Yeah, one, one thing I've heard you say more, I think, recently, so it may, it may have been an innovation, is the idea that restriction is part of the binge cycle. Yeah. Can you talk, talk a little bit about that? That wasn't in the original book, was it? It wasn't in the, in the original book, no. I, uh, people that are good at overeating are usually good at dieting too, almost without fail. And it's much more common that I hear stories from people who say, I've gained and lost 100 pounds seven times versus the people that tell me they gained 700 pounds. Hmm. Um, there are much more, many more stories of people that say they've gained and lost 50 pounds you know, twice versus someone that gained 100 pounds. Overeaters tend to go up and down when they get addicted to the binge. And there is a cycle where they start to believe soon I'm going to be really, really good and compensate for all the bad things that I did. It's like, as one of my clients put, puts it, there's a cleanup crew coming in and in the future that's going to fix my party today. Hmm. And, um, and so I find that there is a acceptance that people have to step off of that feast and famine roller coaster. Um, you know, th there's a study about what yo-yo dieting does to your metabolism. They, they took a bunch of um, rats. This is 1986. I forget who did it. But they took a bunch of rats and they restricted their calories enough for them to lose 100 grams, just for argument's sake. It's probably a different set of numbers, but the proportions and um, conclusions are the same. So the rats lose 100 grams. Let's say it takes 10 days. Then they refeed the rats and they give them a surplus enough that they can put on the 100 grams in 10 days. And then what they did is they forced the rats to go through the study again. And this time... It took twice as much, they fed them the exact same amount of calories, but it took twice as much time for them to lose the 100 grams and half as much time for them to gain it back. And the point of that study shows that when we, we have this belief that it's healthy for us to be able to go up and down like that, but it's really very dangerous. It, it's dramatically slowing our metabolism. It's teaching our body to hold on to fat. And so what you, what you really want to do is not lose weight quickly. You, you, want, you want to, I would say the fastest way to lose weight is slowly because otherwise you're going to get it back. You, you want to really change your behavior and adopt a lifestyle that you can, you can maintain forever. Um, which is another reason that the purity of the lifestyle can sometimes be a detriment where you really need to have, um, you know, some things that feel like indulgences and even though they might not quite be as good for you, um, in the long run, it's much better for you to have a little bit of indulgence than, um, that, than to attempt to be pure, but to totally blow it with all these crazy binges. So almost like a, a psychological vaccination. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way to look at it. Yeah. And if you sign up at mypsychvac.com, I'll get you your second dose within a month. You serious? Okay. <laughs> you, you, you said that in a way that made me think maybe you were serious. Maybe we should have psychological vaccinations. That's funny. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I hear you typing like you're, you're at, uh, GoDaddy re registering the domain as we speak. I, I, I've done that while I'm talking to you. We have good ideas sometimes. <laughs> I know. That's, that's, 
that was that was my that was worse addiction for me than food was <laughs> domain names. Oh my god, I had six hundred domain names at one point, <laughs> and it's so hard to let them go. It's like, what if this is the year that somebody offers me ten thousand dollars? Right, right. I know. <laughs> I, I'll tell you, I still have a hundred. I only use about twenty. Okay. So this has been really helpful and interesting. I hope people um, who who know about Never Binge Again have have understood more. I really want to highlight like just how unusual it is for someone to change so much in their views based on like what works. Like it's really like I suffer so strongly from confirmation bias and I know I'm not alone in this that it really takes a lot of energy and and getting external people to help me because I just want I just want to fight with people when they don't do what, what I say or when they say that it's not working or there's something wrong. So I really want to like however you set it up, the fact that you have made so many discoveries and you've helped so many more people because of your willingness slash eagerness slash hunger to find out what really is going on. I, I really want to just pause and honor that because it's cool. Thanks, Howie. Thanks. And I, I guess the thing I value about myself is my ability to narrate the dialogue and you know, put it all together in a system using the best information and evidence that I have to this point. It's not my ability to, like I'm not trying to write the Bible. I, I'm trying to contribute to that dialogue. That's, that's really my goal. Mm-hmm. Well, I can just imagine in 5,000 years, if Never Binge Again actually becomes the Bible. <laughs> um, people, people are going to be, we're going to have sects who believe that the pig is, you know, flesh, that there was a real pig, what the pig's name was. Uh, yes. yes. Well, what, what's really interesting is that because it's a way of thinking, it's not really, it's not a diet. Um, people adopt it as a way of life and start applying it to other areas of their life and, um you know, and there are people that incorporate it as a kind of religion, um, which I suppose is okay. It's a way of being. I'm not, not leading anybody astray. But um, yeah, well, I mean, I, you know, I use that all the time with people who like you, you, you talk to someone for the first time and you can hear in their in their um, language patterns that they've never considered the idea that there is freedom in their actions around food. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, oh, this is how I've always been. I have a sweet tooth. Right. Or, oh, I have no willpower. Like, you know, you can you can hear it. And then I start asking them about their careers. And if they apply any of those same philosophies and behaviors, like, do you always feel like getting up and going to work in the morning? Like, no. So, oh, so those days you stay in? No. (laughs) And they, they, they get a little offended. And so, you know, so to apply this, the like never binge again is a weird idea around food, but it's really pretty and obvious around life. Like if you want to be successful, you can't be the, you got to follow the rules, the, the, the knee that gets hit by the hammer and, and reflexively kicks up the, 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 the tibia. Yeah. Like you, you have to apply agency to your life. And that's really what you're saying. That's exactly what we're saying. Cool. So how can people who are fascinated, interested, made hopeful by this conversation get in touch with you and start reaping the benefits of Never Binge Again? Oh, it's all at neverbingeagain.com. If you click on the big red button, you will get a 
free copy of the book in Kindle, Nook, or PDF format. And you will hear a set of recorded coaching sessions, including interviews I've done with Howie. As a matter of fact, the first interview that's distributed once you sign up for the reader's bonus list like that is the original podcast that I did with Howie before this had a million readers, before this had even one reader. Um, we recorded a podcast before it was even published. And, but there are also a number of coaching sessions, full-length coaching sessions, where I demonstrate the technique because it, it sounds really harsh in the abstract. It's a way to have this pig inside me and I don't eat pig slop. I don't let farm animals tell me, why is this doctor on the, on the line talking about this stuff? Um, it's a very compassionate, um, soul-enriching, inspiring process that takes people from feeling helpless and despairing and powerless over food to feeling um, hopeful and positive and confident in just one session. So I wanted you to hear that. There's a bunch of sessions you'll listen to. And there are a bunch of food plan starter templates for any dietary philosophy that you want to adopt. So um, there's are sets of rules you might want to play with and alter for yourself for your own needs. Uh, we, we get you started if you're you know, keto or macrobiotic or point counting or calorie counting or, you know, vegan or carnivore, it doesn't matter. There's a, there's a dietary philosophy that will give you some sample sort of rules to get started with. Um, Neverbingeagain.com, click the big red button and sign up for the reader bonus list. Cool. You, could, you couldn't have made it any easier. Thanks, buddy. Uh, thank you, Glenn. It was always a pleasure talking to you and uh, look forward to our next conversation. I love it. All right. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I hope you really enjoyed the improved audio in the second half. I'm not going to make that mistake again. Whatever that mistake was, I will figure it out and debug it and uh, put it, add it to my giant list of audio mistakes that I've made over my career and uh, start making new ones. So uh, what do we got going on? We got uh, movement news. So still doing my workouts, uh, still working on improving my right knee. I did eight miles yes on Sunday, um, two miles of walking uh, with Mia on the uh, American Tobacco Trail, and then six miles of jogging. And boy, my right foot toes were hurting a lot, that neuroma. Uh, I don't know if I need to shift from zero shoes to something with a lot more padding while I'm trying to figure out what I'm doing wrong. But uh, it was it was hard to, uh, to you know, I ended up with sort of a, like an 1120 pace for the jogging part of it. Um, my knee's getting better. Uh, John Hines and Monkey Bar Jim gave me a bunch of exercises called reverse Nordics, where um, I'm basically like kneeling straight, standing straight up and then levering, cantilevering my entire body backwards from my knees that are on the ground and then trying to get back up before I sort of collapse. And that uh, really burns the thighs, but I think it's uh, strengthening the muscles and ligaments around the knee and hopefully stabilizing it. And in garden news, uh, the pecan tree lives. We were, I was getting ready to call someone to cut it down because we lost all those suckers. Like one week in the fall, all these like shoots that were going up just sort of cracked. And we didn't see a single bud until a few days ago. And now it's coming back. So next fall, we'll, we'll get some arborist in to, to take care of all those suckers. But meanwhile, we're just going to let it be and see what it produces. And we put in a lot of potatoes in the ground. And we actually, we did some tilling, which I don't feel good about because uh, 
I just had a conversation with uh, with my friend Marco Vangelisti, who was a podcast guest talking about um, how we can invest our money to save the earth and to uh, to help people. And we're going to do another podcast about climate change and how focusing on carbon is only a tiny piece of the issue. And what we really need to focus on is the hydrological cycle, the water cycle, and how we can do that as gardeners and farmers and consumers and investors. So that'll be coming up soon. But in the meantime, um, back to the garden, going to lay down some some mulch to keep the uh, the water in and keep the soil fertile.